Welcome everyone to another great episode of the Do Better Dev Show. I am here with Nathan, just a plain, simple, classic developer. Oh, perfect. How are you doing, Nathan? That's, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Uh, we talked about it a little bit before the show. I'm just feeling good. I don't know why. Uh, you were surprised. <laughs> uh, but yeah, feeling good. Uh, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. My co-host is having a really good day and he's feeling really good. Mm. So yeah, besides that, I have tons of injuries for some reason on my upper body right now. Uh -huh. And uh, yeah, things hurt. <laughs> All right. Good stuff. <laughs> uh, anything uh, you want to mention from the past week? It's not been a full week since we recorded just because we're recovering our <laughs> schedule from travel. But uh, from the last four or so days, got anything to report on? Yeah, yeah. Um, since we, since I live on the awesome mainland, mm. um, there is lots of events going on. As COVID is dying down, more events are opening up. And we have this event in Richmond called the Richmond Night Market, which is opening up. And it's hella cool. And I'm really looking forward to it, um, mostly because of their food and colorful lights. So, <laughs> yeah, probably going to go there this weekend. And another cool thing I figured out about my laptop is the USB-C port doubles as a charging port. So if I plug in my MacBook charger USB-C into my Dell laptop, it starts charging it, which is handy. And I don't know what situation I'll run into where I'll need it, <laughs> but <laughs> I just learned about it. And I thought that was pretty cool because that USB-C won't even... It, if you plug in a USB-C to HDMI, I can't get an external screen. So I'm limited by one external screen through the HDMI port on the motherboard. Um, but it's cool to know that besides normal peripherals, it also has charging capability. Because I thought it was just useless. Mm. Well, yeah. it's better, better than useless then. Exactly. It has some use. Uh, not quite as useful, but not fully useless. Just like me. Right. So how was your <laughs> week? Going for the sweet spot. Uh, my week was pretty good. Um, didn't do a whole lot over the weekend. Just played a bunch of guitar. Uh, actually played enough to where my fingers hurt, which hadn't happened in a while. Uh, yeah, got outside. Didn't do anything terribly exciting, uh, which kind of made sense. It was almost... I didn't put any effort in to find something very exciting to do after the previous two weeks of doing something pretty much every day. So I was like, let's just let myself be a little bit bored. Um, but from since the last recording, I thought I'd mention that we watched The Green Knight and it was a strange, strange movie. Uh, I don't know whether to call it, I guess it's interesting of the three adjectives we usually use. And, uh, you know, frustrating too. So spoiler alert, if you don't want to be spoiled, um, Green Knight, am I even going to be specific about the plot? Just the ending is just a real real disappointment. I, I wasn't, unlike you, I was very into the movie, and it's a very artsy film. I had no idea what was going on pretty much the whole time, mostly because I, couldn't, I could understand maybe 25% of what was said. And then it got to the end of the movie, and all the stuff that I thought was building up to something just didn't mean anything. It didn't really seem to pay off. Uh, I watched a review by Jeremy Johns because he does like six, seven minute reviews. 
and he's got a lot of energy, so easy to watch. And I've been watching his stuff for a long time. And he loved it. He was like, this movie needed to happen. It was like the, super important for move, like fantasy movies uh, in 2021. And I went, all right. I guess it's for somebody, but it wasn't for, it wasn't for you or I or anybody else that we saw the movie with. Um, and other than that, I, I don't know why. I decided to buy blue cheese stuffed olives and they're delicious so i ate a couple of those earlier today and i was shocked at how good they were uh, i went to the grocery store with a particular um, goal in mind and i'll get to it in my do betters but one of the things i ended up leaving with were blue cheese stuffed olives and i don't really buy olives and i can't say i know anything about cheese so but for some reason these stuck out and I bought them and it was a great choice. So recommend, I guess. Recommend olives, don't necessarily recommend Green Knight. Blue cheese, not Green Knight. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's the takeaway. So we... Hashtag value. <laughs> Hashtag value. This is the value this podcast provides, you know. Now, if somebody was debating between going to the grocery store and theater... They can clearly just go to the grocery store. Well, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. They cost almost uh, almost exactly the same. I think the the jar of olives I got was around eight bucks. That's about what a ticket was. So you could either have a tasty experience that lasts over many days, or a disappointing experience that lasts over a couple hours. That's true. Or you could be one of those people in the theater who just left in the first 10 minutes for some reason. Or that left halfway through. <laughs> yeah. It was like... They just figured it's too much. They don't need any of it. That was they before we were even let down by the by the changing events. They were at like the part where I was the most into it. Uh, you were still preparing to nap, but... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a... Uh, I don't know. It was... I, again... It, I liked the ending, um, didn't like the most of it, and uh, yeah, it's a, and everyone might be wondering why we're talking about this movie too much, and it's because we changed our minds on it by the end, which is a big segue into what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> oh, that was a stretch, but you, you, Thank you, you got us there. So, <laughs> yeah, one of the things I thought we could discuss today, because I saw a, a different podcast was doing a what we got wrong episode and it made me think oh why, and then it made me think of the common Tim Ferriss question I don't know if he still asks it this is what he asked five six years ago when I listened to his show but he would ask what people changed their minds on recently and I thought all right between those two things it got me, gave me the idea let's do something like that if we can come up with topics that we've gotten or that we've changed our mind on and just uh, hash it out so I, I don't know, I don't, actually I don't remember the ones you even sent me. So I know none of yours and I haven't sent you any of mine. So this should largely be a surprise. Uh, how about, actually how many do you have in your list? Um, couple, I have like seven or eight. Oh, perfect. So you go first then. What's okay. the first thing that you have changed your mind on that you want to talk about? Um, the very first thing that I thought about um, as a junior developer early on in my tech was programming languages are interchangeable. I kept thinking they're all the same. It was just a matter of style or how they evolved over time. Uh, 
while there is some truth to it, um, most programming languages are built to target a certain area of expertise or some problem they're trying to solve. So even though there are many languages in similar families, they all have their different strengths and areas of expertise they target. So that was something I changed my mind on as I learned more languages. Because um, in the beginning, I just learned syntax and basic quirks of different languages. And I figured, whatever I want to build, I can build in all of these apps. Uh, languages. And I did. I One of the ways I learn languages is I build a calculator app. It's my go-to. Uh, I The business use case is extremely simple. Uh, it just has enough complexity that I can learn different data types and how return methods work. And I can figure things out slowly but organically. Um, but yeah, over time things have changed. I figure as I learned more about systems and how things work, different languages approach different issues and that's why you should pick them one or the over unless it's ruby don't pick ruby you can find better things <laughs> are there any languages in particular that when you were learning them sort of triggered that thought of oh i was wrong about this or is it too yeah too um, when i started to learn golang um i it's thought this was go. one it's always go. And yeah. in my mind, it was like, this is the ultimate language. I don't need anything ever again. And everything can be built in it because it's so extremely fast. And then I started interfacing with databases in it and realized how badly it supports uh, things like that because it's so structured and rigid um, that object-oriented models are too inflexible for it. And yeah, so that's when one of the things I sort of just like, all right, maybe this is not the best thing. Then I started building certain web servers and add web APIs. And then the more the more need I had for representing proper objects and classes, inheritance, and all those beautiful concepts, the less I was like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> uh, but when I was building a CLI, a Slack bot, a highly like extremely fast web server, um, which again, it just blows my mind to this day that I don't have to build a Python app, throw WSGI in front of it, have it hooked up to Nginx or Apache as a reverse proxy to have a high performance web server. I could just install a package on Go, run it, and it uses all the multi-threading, everything super fast, processing is great, and 90% of the time, my biggest lag is the communication between the database and the app, even if they're hosted on the same machine. It's that fast. <laughs> wow. It's it's crazy how good this language is. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I slowly learned that it has its limitations. And I had the same thing happening with Python when I was starting up. I figured it's so easy to type. It's basically pseudocode. Things are great. I love this. And then I realized on scale and so many other ways, it slows down or it almost has choice paralysis whenever you want to attack a problem. There's apparently 40 libraries and you have to go through every single one of them, figure out what their pros and cons are, if there's documentation and all sorts of different things. So don't be like me in the beginning. Don't be too opinionated or attached to a language. Uh, keep them all in their little separate buckets. It'll probably benefit you in the long run of programming. Yeah, and those were probably really good examples of languages to compare to. Just the the fact that you chose something that's as structured as Go as one of your examples, where the most common error that we get from our web server that runs that uh, is running Go is like 
does not match JSON's schema struct. So it's like you passed in a number and it wanted a string and it just throws up its hands and says, I quit. Like full hard quit. It's, it doesn't recover at all. Whereas you do that for a typical Python app or especially if you've got something that's running JavaScript or something like that. It's just, it's gonna figure out a way to not totally tip over at the point when it's parsing the code, which is when the Go one just throws up its hands. It's gonna like try to run some stuff and see what happens. Whereas Go is like, no, you need to tell me what you're giving me. And then I promise to do it as well as I can. Uh, so yeah, they're very, very different languages for very different reasons. Um, I can see, I could imagine that dealing with the strictness of Go would be a pain. I've only had to deal with it in small systems. Um, by, so I haven't tried to interface with it, use it to interface with the database, for example. But I also know that on the flip side of that, something that is at least in vanilla Python, totally untyped as far as static typing goes, is a real pain. Because uh, you lack a lot of the stuff that you get even from something like TypeScript, which I have complaints about and will come up later. Um, it limits your scalability in a different sense. You, you can't infer as much from just the code itself. So I guess uh, good on you for yeah. learning stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what we're here for, doing better slowly over time. Yeah. So my first one is pretty high-level meta type stuff of just life in general, which was... I. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So uh, before I became a developer... I was like, I just want to be a student or a professor forever so that I can just keep learning forever. And that was what I saw as like peak me, ultimate fulfillment in life is just learning stuff. And then I just found a career that requires you to learn, otherwise you get uh, priced out of the market pretty quick. It's like, you have how much experience and you're how bad? Uh, so you don't want that to happen. So you gotta stay on top of it. And I think, sort of on the flip side of that, anybody who wants to get into development and not just work at, I don't know, a WordPress shop or something that's very uh, scoped and is getting in for a quote-unquote easy job with good pay, they're going to have the inverse situation where they have to stay out of certain areas because they won't be able to keep up and learn. And then I'm having the opposite situation where I avoid those more scoped areas so that I can keep learning and am required to. So pre-dev pre realization, uh, or I guess pre and post-dev realization was, this is a great career for anybody who wants to be a at least career-long learner. And if you don't, it's possible, but it's going to be harder. So I'll go straight into the next one, because that one, like I said, was fairly high level, which is my changing opinion. I spent six months really hating TypeScript and I've come to the conclusion TypeScript's not that bad. So now wow. if I were to choose between TypeScript and JavaScript, I would pretty much always, unless I had a really specific situation that I can't think of, go with TypeScript. And it has its issues and those issues were things that I was very hung up on at first. So I'll start there. The things that I didn't like about TypeScript initially, because 
all the types are at compile time or write time, even not at compile time, they get removed at compile time, at, uh, at write time is they're all just uh, a lie, essentially. Like they don't exist at actual runtime. Um, so if you give the application a number and it's expecting a string, it's just JavaScript at that point. And it, it doesn't actually know what to, to do anything different. So you get a bunch of benefits at right time of saying this function expects this. And if you're running your compiler and it's clearly from a one call site passing in a number and it's supposed to be a string, it will yell at you when it compiles that code. But then those types disappear and the actual running code has to be JavaScript because browsers don't run TypeScript. And so I was like, all of this is a lie. It's all a facade, none of it matters. And that transitioned into, these are more or less like really useful comments and they're just, they're just type annotations for the developer. They don't, yes, they don't really have a benefit at runtime, but you get a lot of inference, which is really nice. So if you're using a, an IDE that supports it, you'll get automatic uh, completion of a lot of stuff. You'll get prompts to um, tell you you're trying to do this and that's not a good option. Um, I also thought that they were unnecessarily, simultaneously unnecessarily strict and unnecessarily broad. And this was kind of a misunderstanding. So you can't really do function overloading very well in TypeScript because of the, you essentially you can't have a polymorphic function. You have to say like, you know, in, in Java, you can define a function a bunch of different ways and it will just pick the one that matches. That can't happen in TypeScript because <laughs> it's JavaScript. It only has one function. So if you write the function and it expects these arguments, you have to use this whole generics type system to try to fit any polymorphism into that function. So you can't just say if it accepts one argument, do this. If it accepts two, do this. So you have to write separate functions, which is fine, but it's a different strategy. And then when you try to do something that's a very generic function, like if you were trying to apply it to um, higher order functions that are accepting functions, it can become very difficult if it's supposed to be super generic. You essentially have to do like, it accepts generic type T, which is then converting into an array of T. And you're like, that's fine until it gets more complex than that. And then you look at the types and realize this was supposed to give me, like make my life easier. And I'm just now spending time fighting with the type system. Whereas without the types, you could just do like X comma dot, dot, dot X. And you're, you're kind of good to go. You're like those are I just, whatever the arguments are, I'll just accept them, put them into an array. Uh, and then loop over them or, or do whatever I want. So I had, I had issues with that. And then I realized it's just a matter of thinking about the code a bit differently, how you define your functions, writing those differently, and not thinking of TypeScript as an extension to JavaScript, thinking of it as a different language. And once I started doing that, it's like, okay, I can start to see the benefits here. I was trying to write TypeScript like JavaScript. doesn't work very well. And I think it's a bad recommendation that a lot of, actually everywhere that I've watched an introduction to TypeScript, it refers to as an extension of JavaScript, takes JavaScript code, converts it to TypeScript. I think that's fundamentally just a bad idea because yes, it's 
you can just add types to JavaScript and it becomes TypeScript. But somewhere along the way, if you're thinking about it as JavaScript the whole time, it breaks down the, and it doesn't take very long. And the other thing that I don't, didn't like and I still don't like because it's still broken is TypeScript can't infer the value of a untyped function that's passed to another function. So if you have a callback and, or sorry, let's say you have a filter. So say you have an array and you call dot filter on it and you're doing X arrow function X, meaning it'll just automatically filter out all the falsy values. For example, if you want it to be more specific, X does not equal false, whatever. Uh, so filter out everything that's not false. So you then, you know, looking at that code, what the possible values are that's left in the array. So the most common thing would be you'd have an array, you would filter out all the undefines or something like that. You now know that that result has no undefines. Your code clearly says that. And you can even type the callback that you're giving to the filter function and TypeScript still will tell you there could be undefines in this array. And you're like, I filtered them out right here and I told you that that's what would happen. I told you that they were gonna come in as you know, number or undefined and they would only return numbers and it still says, I can't trust that because this doesn't run until runtime. But you have to do this stupid thing where you then do a, a type assertion where you're like, I'm gonna filter these all out, assign it to a new variable and say as array of number. And at that point it says, okay, if you promise that's an array of numbers, and so it hints at the thing that I mentioned earlier that I didn't like before, which was TypeScript types are a lie and you can just tell it anything you want at any time and it believes you. So you can just say this, you could literally have like string, uh, like const s equals some string as number. I'm sure there's versions of, or like settings in TypeScript that'll yell at you, but like it'll essentially have to have to believe you because you asserted that that was how, what the type was. And it'll probably tell you like, you can't assign that value, but if it's coming in dynamically, it'll just trust you that, yep, it's a number because you said so. So I, I don't remember if I actually wrote a post about it or just thought about writing a post about it. But at one point I was gonna write a thing that was TypeScript sucks, but you should use it. And it I think you wrote essentially it. goes through those reasons. So uh, yeah, TypeScript. That was the thing I changed my mind about. It sounds like I still hate it, mm. and I still do, but I thought it was bad in, res I thought it was worse than JavaScript, and it's clearly much better, especially for team-based stuff. Um, being able to tell other developers through types how to use something is really nice, and especially in React, when you're like, this is what the data looks like from the API, don't assume otherwise. I wrote it in a data type, if, it, if it's yelling at you saying that you're using it wrong, it's because you're using it wrong. And it's great for that. Yeah, it's uh, I think that's the biggest selling point, right? Um, sure, there are issues in the runtime and it's inevitable because of how the language and the compiler works, but most of the issues happen at developer level. And if you can somehow prevent those, um, then it's a win-win for everybody. You pretty much don't see undefined is not a function if you're, at least at least if you're intermediate writing TypeScript React code. Whereas that was very easy to do accidentally 
in JavaScript land because an undefined just bubbles up without you realizing it, whereas TypeScript will, unless you didn't type it as you were going, but if you type things as you're going, it'll let you know ahead of time, this is going to be undefined here, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, and another, like, that really big distinction of not thinking of it as an extension to JavaScript and its own thing, um, because when I think about it as JavaScript, I do this thing where I say, well, JavaScript doesn't care, so the type for this is any. <laughs> and that's like all over my TypeScript. Oh, <laughs> it's just, that's... I'm just like, I know what I'm processing and let it accept whatever you want, because at the end of the day, who cares? Oh, it's just, that's uh, so painful. Yeah. It, it just defeats the entire purpose of the language. Yeah, and as soon as you put one any in, everything that interacts with that is now like as type unsafe as JavaScript. There's really no point. Pretty much. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so don't do that. That's bad. Bro tip. <laughs> Bro tip. Yeah, don't do that. What's your next one? Um, recursion. Ooh, you've got my I know. attention. <laughs> I know. Um, so I've had this thing since high school of, I had this mindset that either things make sense to me and I'll be great at them or they don't. And if they don't once, I will forever get into this mindset that this thing is stupid or I am too stupid to understand it and thus I should eliminate it from my life. With recursion, there was this always middle ground of I understand it, but I don't understand it. And it just kept going in this infinite loop and there was no exit condition and that was my life. Uh, <laughs> until I truly embraced why they're useful. Because um, in my head, I always looked for the simpler, cleaner solution. So anytime it was doing that, I'd say, okay, I can just write an iterative solution for it. Uh, it's the same reasoning I used to give when I was learning different data types. So when they were like, there's linked list, queues, stacks, I'd say, it's all just array. Why don't you just put everything in an array? You're making things more complicated than it needs to be. And as I grew as a developer and learned different things and how real world works and how useful these things are, um, I started to grow, grow warm, do recursion. Uh, I, I'm still not the greatest at it. I understand the concept. I can write pretty much any data type in it. Uh, but if given the choice of making a function recursive versus iterative, I think 99% of the time I will always go iterative uh, unless there's some crazy good performance boost I'm getting from recursion. Because uh, in my mind, I still believe recursion is really just to make it sort of easier for the developer or to write the code in less lines. Uh, but iterative solution is where it's at. And yeah, sometimes for certain things, when you're like trying to go through the tails of things and iterating over complex data structures, the, the iterative solution might look much uglier than the recursive solution would. So you have to still pick your battle, but I figured it was worth mentioning and admitting out loud that I have started warming up to recursion. Uh, every time I study for interviews and everything, it it makes sense, it makes things easier, it makes concepts little less hard to follow. Uh, so long the exit condition is more explicit. But And not to mention in programming, there's tons of recursive jokes. And then there's lots of recursive jokes and lots of recursive jokes and lots of recursive jokes. Yeah, so it's pretty great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the first step is admitting that you've changed your mind. 
the next yeah, step and that's the exit condition oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i agree though the the point when recursion tends to shine is not when you're working with something that is just needing a loop it's when you're dealing with recursive data structures where you're essentially saying if this were the only element in this tree i would do this uh, but because it's not let's just uh, do it again until we hit a leaf node. And so you're essentially looking at a little tiny inner function of do this for everything. And then the for everything is handled by recursion. And oftentimes that's very easy to understand. And then if you do need something, like if you have a language that doesn't support tail call recursion or tail call optimization, then yeah, you'll, you might have space concerns. But oftentimes if, as far as interviews go, if they want a recursive solution, they'll tell you the size of data that you're gonna get. Like, oh, it's gonna have this many elements in it. You're like, all right, well, that's fine. We can handle that many uh, items in the stack or whatever. Um, where if it's too big, yeah, you'll have, have issues with stack overflows. Yeah, it's also one of those programming language concepts where until you understand it, you feel like an absolute idiot and the moment it just clicks, it, you never go back. It, it, the clicking is so important. And once that happens, you just feel like this super smart genius person. <laughs> and uh, yeah, one, one day you're having imposter syndrome. Next day you have a God complex. And that's just the world of programming, you know, and it's pretty great. When I tried to remember what it was like to not understand context, it was really hard. I was like, how would I explain this? And it was part of the reason why I made YouTube videos. Because as soon as I really got a good handle on something, I would try to record a video as soon as I could. It was like when I first learned promises and how they were implemented in JavaScript. I was like, make the video right now. Because this is the closest I'm ever going to be to remembering how confused I was three weeks ago. And now I've spent a lot of time with it and I get it and it clicked. Explain it now. Because now if I had to explain a lot of these more fundamental concepts like context or uh, instance variables or something. I'd be like, how, how else can I explain this to you? It's an instance variable. It, you, there's an instance of the class and there's a variable in it. What else do I need to tell you? Uh, <laughs> so whereas at the time, I'm sure I could have gone through a huge explanation of this is how your brain works now. And it's how mind brain worked. And now this is the other side that you can't go back from. Yeah. Remember learning this? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's just, what is well, this? this Context just always reminds me of like, uh, like more on the Android developer side because context is so thrown around there, so much used. Mm. And then in the JavaScript world or Python and stuff, it's mostly like, this well it's like yeah self self makes yeah. sense this or self this yeah. makes no sense <laughs> it's whatever this is <laughs> yeah but it, where you it are it can be set in four <laughs> or five different ways and it's so confusing and yeah yeah it's fine and anyways but those are the things yeah. you learn yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it'll fix your imposter syndrome maybe maybe not Maybe Stay not. Stay tuned for another Just episode. have the God complex either way. Just fake it. <laughs> fake it till you make it. It's pretty much what development's all about. That's actually something I changed my mind on. I used to think that you had to learn stuff. You don't. 
Mm. You, it's one of my points. Oh, well, there you go. Do you want to go get that? I don't have a ton. It sounds like you have a few more than me. Do you want to go get that one? Oh, next? sure. Yeah, it's uh, that I had this understanding of because programming, when you're not in it, when you're on the outside world, seems like this really smart, perfect world full of engineers doing all these smart things. Uh, hackers sitting there and like, I'm in, I've hacked the Pentagon. Um, so when you enter the world, you're surrounded by all these really smart people. There's this fear that, or the, the understanding I had was, if I can pitch, because it's such a mind place, it's like, if I can pitch a perfect solution, even if it's not like I haven't coded it or it doesn't work in real life, it would be really smart and better than a really inefficient but working solution. And that, boy, that I, I have changed my mind on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You could have something that's O log N, but if it works, it's better than your theoretical O to the one solution that is not generating any revenue customers or working software. Um, so yeah, and um, that's one of the Agile manifestos too, right? Working software over planning and planning and forever of just trying to figure things out. Um, yeah, and that's partially a good way to tackle imposter syndrome because if you just get things working, no matter how bad it is, then you can improve upon it. Um, and that is not a mindset I had because in schools and universities, the mindset is you do it once and you get a perfect grade or you fail <laughs> and you go home. <laughs> and that's the mindset I had for the longest time until I entered programming and got relatively not bad at it was do things, make it better. And that's how you guarantee job security. Go into your code, put time.sleep all over the place. And then when they complain it's too slow, remove it. And now you're a genius. Oh. Uh, no one check my git commit history, please. <laughs> uh, so similar to that, um, I, my opinion changed a little or my interpretation was similar but shifted a little bit so it was like yours was in the beginning where it's like you okay you come up with a great solution and you implement it and everybody's glad that that's how you wrote it and then it went to you start somewhere and you get the code running and then from there you can figure it out into i think the difference between you know early stage intermediate slash junior to where I am now, which is I, where I had some experience and had seen how things actually work, which is you write code uh, instead of th theory craft, to where I am now where it's like, okay, how do you write a better first solution, which is a lot of focus on not writing the wrong thing and writing something that's extensible from where you started. So in other words, before like the middle stage for me was write something and we can figure out how to make it better later to being very careful not to try to predict the future and at the same time trying to intentionally leave our future selves lots of space to make those decisions. Because the middle stage didn't involve thinking too much about have I made this easy to work with in the future? It's yeah, we'll make it better later. We'll figure out how to optimize it later or we'll figure out how to add features to it later. And now it's while we're building that first version, we don't know what it should look like eventually. So let's just uh, make it easy on our future selves. And that's honestly most of the, <laughs> the guiding principle. I've mentioned this abstraction for uh, event logging in a few different episodes. 
And that was how we started and it's why it's still working now, a year later. It, our needs have changed, but we at each stage said, what do we need to have as existing behavior? And how can we leave this as open as possible from this point without trying to make guesses as to what we might need? And it's worked out great. Sometimes it does, sometimes you still accidentally block yourself. But trying to imagine what it could be can, and without taking intentional steps towards that direction can, at least I've found, uh, help a lot. So that probably in the last year or two even has solidified for me more. And I'm sure in the next two years will solidify further as I get more examples. But it was something I didn't see a lot of living in front end land where everything's just components and components are components are components. So if you need to need to refactor something, just make us another smaller component and load that, break it off into another component. It's too complicated. It's just a component split into another component. It was very fractal. And that's how it works. That's how apps work. Yeah. They're all, all just fractals. <laughs> Components. Yeah. So, um, also like just an extension to it. Um, the, the fact that you need to get things working, uh, as opposed to figuring out the perfect solution is also transferable to interviews hmm. for the longest time. I believe if I enter an interview and I don't give them the right solution, regardless of how many YouTube videos, books, everything I've read, which are like, don't focus on the getting the thing working. It would be nice if it did, but walk them through what you're thinking. It's more important, uh, which is something I didn't believe in at first. I was like, this is all bull crap. Uh, none of this is true. And if my code doesn't work, why would they hire me? Um, and that's when I realized it's not code who they're hiring, it's you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> took a while, took a while for me to realize that uh -huh. the problem solving is the important skill, not outputting code, because we have AIs now that can do that. Um, yeah, so yeah, very important distinction to remember and always focus on. And I know if you're listening to this and thinking it's all bull crap like I did, um, you'll probably end up at this stage sooner or later. Uh, so do it sooner and focus more on what your thinking process is and what you want to communicate as opposed to thinking perfect solution in an interview will get you the job. The, it helps. The God complex comes but. back. It's all about you. It's not about the code. That's <laughs> right. Hiring, Hashtag humility. They're hiring me. <laughs> they're hiring me. <laughs> yeah. Me and my brain who is also me. Yeah, it's all, it, it's... <laughs> All about you. So always been you. <laughs> always yes. has been. So my next one is somewhat recent, and it's very specific to my current team, which is that uh, feature flag development or feature flag driven development. It actually seems to be working. So we'll have to see what happens in about a year. See if we just have a ridiculous increase in complexity with feature flag bloat because we failed to clean it up as we went. Hard to say. But at least a few months in, the initial impression is it's a whole lot better than I thought. So for those who don't know, feature flag driven development is essentially what it sounds like, where if you deploy your code, all new changes are behind feature flags. So observably, nothing in the application has changed. No behavior is different. Um, users wouldn't know that you deployed your code. And then it's up to product to decide, all right, now that this feature is fully built, we're told it's all 
uh, out in production, available to us if we want it, we can now enable this, this feature flag and the feature turns on. So I thought this is very wishful thinking. Our code is gonna become a big old if flag else not flag existing behavior mess. And so far it hasn't. We've had maybe a couple instances where it's a little more frequent of if conditions than I would like. But for the most part, there's a pretty easy entry point you can find to a new feature. And you're either saying, if the flag's on, use this new implementation. Otherwise, use the existing implementation. And surprisingly, when I push up new features, there will be one, maybe two checks to see if the flag is on. And what's great about it is that we've, this is, I should practice this as part of this for future interviews. I implemented, not we, I implemented a pro tip for those if they missed that. That was talking about the team as a we instead of if you actually did it, you should be saying that you did it. So this is something not relevant to a podcast, but just generally I need to practice this because I always do it wrong. Uh, but I set it up when I was implementing our test suite to use the, the new feature flags to also work with local development via a simple JSON file. So we can define whatever feature flags we want running in local development, and then it'll hot reload if you change them, the application reloads, now you've got the new behavior. And so the process even of building a feature makes it very easy to swap back. So sometimes you'll be halfway through a feature and try to remember, is, or you, you come across something that's wrong and you have to go check a different environment or you have to reload master to find out if this is a regression or something that uh, was already in the existing behavior. Whereas with this, you just flip the feature flag back and you're like, what's it do right now? Oh, it was already like that. Perfect. Flip it back on. All right, I'll keep building my feature. And it's been incredibly convenient. We even had a bug fix go out that we're like, we're pretty sure this is how it works and we're pretty sure it'll make it better, but we're going to put it behind a feature flag. And we rolled it out to production, nothing changed. The customer that was concerned about the bug, we turned it on just for them. And we're like, did it work? And they went, yep, all's good. So then we release it to everybody else. And product got to handle that. The devs weren't involved in the actual release to the customer's part, which is exactly what you want. You want the business side to be working with customers, not business to be telling customers that on this date at this time we'll be releasing these features and then something goes wrong in the pipeline and they have to then reach out again and say oh that feature's not actually out yet if they don't communicate till everything's already out and available and then they flip it on things are way better so just 10 out of 10 i was so surprised again i thought this was going to just be a code nightmare but the code's been pretty good the actual process has improved a lot and i'm just real happy about it well, Especially as somebody who has like, to do uh, release manager stuff. I don't have to worry so much anymore about accidentally releasing stuff because it's all behind feature flags. Yeah, it's it's always it's all released. Always, always has, has been. been. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then it solved our problem with cross-service dependencies. So we used to have to list out um, if somebody wrote something in a potentially, I don't want to assume, but potentially non-backwards compatible way, Say that you server updates or one service updates to API, the other server services consuming it. Maybe they don't 
write the consumer in a backwards compatible way. It's depending on the new service to have the new API because we have one team that manages multiple services. Now, if it's behind a feature flag, you don't have to be backwards compatible. Either it's on and they're both on or it's off and they're both off and they use the old behavior. So it's just, it's just been so great. My opinion was changed. 10 out of 10. Wow. This is actually what made me think of the episode examples. I was like, do I have enough examples? Yes, feature flags. And then I went from there. Wow. Yeah. Sounds like it switched the happy flag it, in your head. Yes, maybe that's why I'm feeling so good. <laughs> feeling good today because nice. somebody enabled being happy as a feature. Wow. <laughs> well, that, that product, you are a great product that should have that feature. Wow. Thanks, Gid. What's your next one? <laughs> Um, it's actually still on the, I, I noticed that it's on also on the interviewing thing. Okay. Um, new, new hot take that I have acquired this year. Okay. I like hot takes. Is, yeah. Is you can say no in interviews. You can question the interviewer, interviewer. Yeah. And you like, so I had two assumptions. One. Um, you can't ask a lot of questions because that makes you look weak and dumb <laughs> and you should just know everything that they're asking you. Uh, because why else would they, they're not going to hire the guy who's asking a lot of things. They're going to hire the guy who has answer for everything. Everybody loves to know it all. That's the saying, right? <laughs> so that's like everybody uh, tells me. I mean, what? <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> um, and then the other one was don't question them. They've spent hours thinking about these interview questions and of course, if they're asking, you must solve it in the way they have asked, or else you are just not fit for the skill. Um, again, it all ties back to they're trying to hire the way you think, not that they're your uh, mach like machine that's just executing commands. Um, unless that is the kind of company, uh, and you may want to get away from it. Um, yeah, so yeah, that was the big lesson I learned that, and you can do it politely without being a bad person. So if they give you a question, you can just say, hey, what is the thing you're trying to aim at here? And what skills are you trying to find? Because I don't think this fully assesses the role and my expectations. And uh, that seemed to work for me. Even though the question wasn't changed, um, I was able to direct it more to the skills I wanted to know they were focusing on as opposed to what other things I thought it would. It was slightly changed, not fully, but enough that I felt now confident moving forward with it because of what I thought they would assess. And of course, to show your thought process, validate assumptions, ask questions, clarify requirements. It's like interviewing 101, go listen to our previous episodes. But I, the important distinction or thing I wanted to make up here is they are not the highest authority, they are a authority, and you can still question them and ask them because interviewing is a two-way street. True that. Uh, yeah, I think that's all my interview ones. Okay, I have another one. So Another one. Another one. Let me just see if I already covered this in our discussion about extensibility. No, not really. So, as some people will know, <laughs> I went through a deep functional programming rabbit hole for a couple years and just really got into functional programming. 
And a lot of that influenced what I thought was a good way of writing code, which I still think is, but there's a caveat, which is not necessarily with other people. So I was under the uh, belief at the time that the most important thing was to write code that was expressive. In other words, that kind of said what it did was obviously correct if possible. And that, um, oh, what was the other thing I had? I have a third thing that I used to think, I don't know what it would have been, but it was, the most important thing was expressive, so like says what it does and obviously correct. So like small functions that are composable, the whole functional programming ethos. And then I thought it was, after I got to that point, I thought sometimes my code is still wrong. This is a problem. And so I got really deep into testing and I thought what's actually important, so it's not so important to write code that really well. It is, but what's more important is that you write really good tests because then the tests are so good that they'll at least make sure your code works the way you expect. And so I got into like property-based testing, which is big in functional programming and unit testing because functional code is really easy to unit test. And I thought, cool, if I just have all these examples in my unit tests and then I have a property-based test, it's gonna fill in those gaps with things I can think of. Now my code is gonna be super good. And until you have to interact with the real world, that's kind of true. So I still think if you're writing an application that you can kind of put safety rails around and say like, this is the part that interacts with the real world and then the guts of it are written in that way, you can still have a lot of success. But as it turns out, the real world is very messy and you have to work with other people, which is a real pain. So I guess that kind of influenced it as well. Was my first job, I largely coded on my own for close to a year and because I was just writing basic stuff, automating a lot of things. It was, um, it was more or less a let's see if he can write code well enough to put him on the real team sort of uh, process. And so I had a lot of time to work on those things that didn't interact too much with the real world. And it was a lot of, do I understand what this code does? Yes. And at some point I realized the most important thing with writing code with other people is not is your code correct? Is your code expressive? Is your code easy to parse? It's, is your code what other people expect it to be? And that has been my like guiding principle for how I style my code for the most part these days, where if I have a variable name that seems to imply, like especially a Boolean, that makes somebody have to look at it and be like, all right, if not, is underscore thing. I'm like, is there a way I can write this so that it's just like not in, not using the not or whatever, just to make it easier for another person to look at this code and say like, oh, I, it does what I expect. If you have an early return and it's not the early return that you'd expect from the function name, for example, like, all right, I need to reword something here. I need to rearrange this somehow. It seems like the early, 
I've had it before, for example, where the early return actually is kind of the default behavior. And so like, can I restructure this in a way that it doesn't look like that's the error condition where something went wrong, so I quit the function? And doing these sorts of things seem to have a much higher success rate for me on working with other people because they're less likely to read your code later and introduce bugs because they misread it. They're less likely to ask you a bunch of questions when you push up a PR. And your code is just part of the zeitgeist a lot more easily. Um, so that's been a big thing. And then after that, once the style's all sorted out, then I can worry about, now is it doing exactly what I think it's doing? And as long as it is, that's where you can fill in your tests. And the tests are a lot more about writing things that's both expected, which is typically considered happy path type stuff, and unexpected. So if bugs came up, making sure you get test coverage on that bug, writing the test coverage in and then fixing it so that the test passes. Those sorts of things are really good. Writing, if you come up with a case when you're developing the feature, you're like, oh, I accidentally passed this value to this API endpoint and it had this unexpected behavior. It's not really a bug, but it's not really, write a test for it that says this behavior happens. And then if somebody comes in later and sees it, they're like, okay, we were aware of this. <laughs> Maybe you leave a, a note that says like, this is why we left it this way. Do something because then if they come to change it later, they remove that, that line of code that does that behavior, that test fails. They at least have to look at it and be like, all right, pers previous person thought this was real behavior. So they wrote a test for it to describe it. And then you can have a discussion about what it is. The nice thing about Git and everything is that you can then reference a PR where that change was made. And if you leave good commit messages, you can write essentially an explanation to a future person who's confused. But if you don't do any of those things, they never get to that PR with your message. So these were, these were the big hard hitting realizations. <laughs> For me, because uh, that's what I spend most of my time doing. Fortunately, I haven't been pushed over into management or anything yet. I still get to write code. And thinking about how other people are going to read it is a, is a big deal. Bigger than I thought it would be. Yeah, because humans are the most expensive part of software development now. So if the talent understands what's going on, everything will be good. Everything will be jolly. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure there are dev shops that write more in the style I originally described. Like maybe if they use, um, oh, I forget the name. There's a company here in town that writes in a Lisp language, uh, Elixir? It might not even be a Lisp, but it's a functional programming language. Um, they might do something that's more like how I originally described, or if the company writes with Scala or something like that. But in the Python world of REST APIs that I'm mostly living in. Uh, there's a lot of stuff around it, but that's the core of the teams I've been on. There's an expected style and adhering to that expected style is the most important thing for communicating with other developers. The more you veer from that, the more inherently confusing your code becomes for them just because it's unfamiliar. And you'll probably get like spoken up during code review for situations like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where they'll just comment, this is bad or don't do this. <laughs> yeah. The most helpful PR comments are the ones that just tell you that you're bad. <laughs> yeah. 
if false, just using the Boolean false. Mm. This will always be false. <laughs> Classic. <Yeah. laughs> Classic. That was the last thing on my list. Uh, wow. Well, I got a few then. Oh, cool. Um, well, I guess they're all sort of related to work environments. So uh, the biggest one is uh, the so there's some context there's this mindset in I don't know if it's like anywhere in North America or not but like mostly in Asia and based on how I think previous generation worked was there's this mindset of your employer is providing you with they give you money or whatever and give you a place to go work and because of that money you're able to feed yourself your family whatever so there's this sense of ownership of like that I should be grateful for this job and but it's it's not in the way of hey I'm grateful for the opportunity I have it's more that I owe this company my time and my energy or whatever and that doesn't go both ways because even though the company might care for you uh, if you died they'll replace you within a week uh, very quickly uh, it's not even like it's ridiculous how quickly you can be replaced at your job, uh, regardless of how important you think you are, however you're maintaining everything. Um, yeah, so biggest lesson I learned that changed my mind there is good to care about your job, good to care about your coworkers and everybody, everybody, but care about yourself more. Um, and somehow, weirdly, that makes you better at your job. If you're looking out for yourself, you'll be most likely healthy and in a good mental state to care of, take care of the said job and not get emotionally drained or attached or blamed or anything if things go wrong or when things go wrong because that's the real world we live in. Um, so yeah, that was a pretty big lesson or mind shift of, because every time I would like, I think I'm pretty sure for the first and the second job I was quitting, I had this huge guilt, gray cloud over my head of, why am I doing this? Maybe things can still work out. It's like almost leaving an abusive relationship where you're like, hey, um, this could be better. Could be, right? Um, you just have to remember it's, uh, it could be, maybe, but it is not. And you live in the present and leave and take care of yourself. And whatever resource the company needs, they'll hunt for it. They'll find it. Um, of course, on the, I mean, I don't know, if you're the CEO and you leave, that's maybe worse for the company. But they'll eventually find a new CEO if you're not enjoying it and you hate yourself and your job. <laughs> or or if um, you're the only DevOps guy at that startup. That That's also very painful. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it gets boring and sad and um, I don't want to get it. Um, but yeah, that's a big one that I learned. And then something relevant to that is um, I used to believe sick days are for physical health only. So unless I have broken something, I'm super feverish. Uh, I should not be taking sick days. Uh, thank God our world, or at least on the Western side, it's a little bit more open and mature at the fact of mental health is recognized to some extent. There is still a lot of stigma, but if you don't care very much, uh, you can get a day off from your sick days for your mental health to take care of yourself. Um, and if they say anything negative about it, you can shame them publicly because <laughs> West Coast is awesome for that. Oh, God. Uh, ideally, you wouldn't have to, you know, <laughs> but uh, but your mental health is very important. And I didn't used to believe that. I, I just 
be in the mindset of, oh, suck it up. And uh, that wasn't very healthy. So, yeah, those were the two big ones I sort of felt at. Any, anything to add? Mm, no, I don't think so. I, I think I'm just more, more selfish because, yeah, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> I don't really care. Uh, I, th- <laughs> I suppose it's more so the two companies I worked at. One of them just straight up went out of business before I could leave. So I didn't have to feel bad about that. And then the other one, I should have left before I started. So it was pretty easy to leave. Nice, yeah. nice. Um, <laughs> yeah, and oh, another thing I learned was, so there's this thing of, at least in tech that I've noticed, is working hard gets so prioritized in everything. So at least what I used to believe was, it doesn't matter who I talk to, how many people I know in the company or whatever connections I'm building. If I just keep my head down, do my work, be good at it, that's all that matters. I'm going to get through all the promotions. Things will be good and they'll throw all the money at me because I'm a good developer. And to some extent that works out for developers because if they realize you're a good resource, um, they will try to do whatever to keep you. But a good, I would say 80% of climbing the ladder or having more visibility into your progress and things you'll be doing is showing it off. And by showing it off, I don't mean like you walk in the office, you stand on your table and you're like, here are the 10 things I did better than everybody else. (laughs) And this is why I deserve everything. Uh, And a little drum set marches and sings for you in high pitch. So Uh, that was Um, off-putting? I shouldn't have done that? (laughs) I enjoyed it, uh-huh. but I don't think the company would have. Okay. Uh, um, anyway, uh, yeah, so I'm learning, uh, especially as you move up a little bit more, um, who you know and how well they know your work impacts a lot more than just getting a whole bunch of work done um, and not having any visibility for it. So that could be in the form of documentation, JIRAs, and anytime you do something for another coworker or things you're going above and beyond for, document it and bring it up during your promotion cycles or whenever there is a review. Because if you think you worked that one weekend and your manager is going to remember that six months later because you put so much work into it, they're not going to. They have their own life. Uh, just because you don't have one doesn't mean they don't. And that was a big revelation for me. I just thought everybody should know what I'm up to all the time and they should give me special treatment and they didn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, document things, um, don't overwork and kill yourself on it um, and socialize and get to know more uh, people in your company and make sure there's visibility. Best way to get to n- get them to know you is by you showing the things you've done. Um, of course, it doesn't mean you're just like constantly going out for happy hours with your coworkers and you haven't built a feature in four months and then you'll be like but but sean you really like me and he'll be like i do but you're a shit employee so bye <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's there's that balance but the more important thing that i always had my mindset fixed on was do your work keep your head under and things will work out um it doesn't work that way do your work make sure everybody knows it talk to everybody and it will help you in ways it's it's crazy the build up effect on that of they won't remember what you did six months ago but because you made it available and visual they'll remember you have a track history of getting stuff done and that'll 
that that's what will help you really get those reviews and uh, recommendations going. Yeah, there's a, a lot of stuff there, but it was all really good because like one of the things that I started doing a long time ago was when I worked on something that I th thought I should bring up in a, a performance review was to actually write it down because they're not going to remember, but I'm not going to remember either. And so making notes as you go through the year is really valuable. I just, as I've said before, keep things in a Google Keep note and it just grows throughout the year. And when I get to my performance review, I can pull it up and go, oh yeah, I forgot about all those things I did. Let's remind my uh, manager or whoever I'm speaking to. So those are really good. And public channels are really good as well. I wish it wasn't such a thing. This was like something that I was aware of, but I didn't want to be true. Whoever demos the code, if you're doing sprint demos, gets a lot of credit for stuff. And hopefully it's not a developer. So like right now, it's the product owner slash scrum master, whoever's standing in for us in that meeting uh, that, uh, that day, who will do it. Everybody knows they didn't write the code, so it's fine. But if you have somebody on the dev team who's demoing stuff, no matter who built the feature, they get all the credit. And so I, even on when we've had to fill in at my current company, everybody knows that person A couldn't possibly have written all these different features, but if he's the one demoing them, he's associated with that feature. He got so much done this sprint. It's like, was he even here this sprint? Nobody knows, but he's, he's, he was showing it. So clearly he was associated with it. So if you have a rotation of people and you're skipping it because you don't want to be in front of people, be aware that you're really doing yourself a disservice for getting credit for development work. Even if you didn't demo that feature or even if you didn't build that feature, if they're demoing features, other devs are demoing features that you built, take the opportunity when it comes up to do a sprint demo so that you can be associated with some code and people don't think that you don't get anything done. Because for some reason, that's how it works. And the other thing is public channels in Slack. Sometimes, if I just notice I have five or six open PRs that I need reviews for, I'll just throw them all in one message in Slack. And it, does, it happens infrequently enough that it's not, oh, he's just being annoying again. But it subtly tells everybody in that channel, oh, look at all this work. Nathan's just waiting for somebody to look at it. Why is nobody looking at Nathan's work? And that is the message that gets sent instead of Nathan didn't get his work done this sprint. What happened? So it's very different. Same reality, but two very different interpretations. One of them, they want to demo the feature and it's not done yet. The other one, they saw that there was six PRs up. Why is nobody getting around to reviewing Nathan's work? He's clearly doing a lot of work. It's ready. Uh, so <laughs> these are the things that I wish weren't real that just occasionally dip your toe in them and it, it will benefit your, uh, your image, so to speak, within the company. And that matters if you are doing good work. If you're not doing good work, I don't care. Hopefully you get fired or whatever. But if you're doing good work and people don't know about it, they don't know that you're doing the good work. So you just have to give them the opportunity to see it sometimes. Even yeah. if it's not your work, I, for whatever reason. Exactly. <laughs> as, I, as I read somewhere uh, for like work things was, 
in the workplace, perceived reality is the actual reality. Right. Oh, that's so. <laughs> that's what they'll remember. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's how it works. Yeah. Um, that's the. Yeah, the another little one I had that I kept thinking if it's really a thing or not is, in the beginning I believed everything should be as far as databases go, everything can be solved by a relational database. You don't need NoSQL. Why do you live without structure? Who are you? What are we lost in civilization? <laughs> um, but that was very quickly changed because I only learned about the concept of NoSQL be before actually using the databases. Mm -hmm. And once I used Mongo and stuff and looked at scaling problems and understood other things, once I understood the difference, it wasn't like it shifted a huge mindset. I just be like, oh, okay. So to, now I today, get it. what's your, what's your, elevator pitch for why you would want to use a NoSQL database now that you're converted? Oh, um, because it's the best and relations are hard and committing is bad. It's 2021. Commitment is out the window. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> we will have eventual consistency and we will have streaming real fast data and it will have no structure and good luck Golang writers. Postmodern database. There you go. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I have no real elevator pitch. It'll be, let's walk to the boardroom from the elevator, figure out what you need to do, and pick the right database. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Look at this guy. This proper discussion about decisions. Nuance. Who wants that? Not me. Not for a podcast. I want a hot takes. Everything up before Mongo is bad. Everything after Mongo, also bad. It's just Mongo. <laughs> yeah. It's the it's the worst thing since um, non-stuffed crushed on pizza. Oh. Yeah. Crushed pizza is like, that's like up there with garlic bread. So it's a nice big invention. And I don't know why we don't do more of it. More stuffed crust. Yeah. Mm. It's the only way I'll eat crushed off a of pizza. Yeah. I've, yeah, I've noticed... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, this is my hot take. Crushed sucks and is useless, and we shouldn't be putting it without anything on the pizza. Just give me the middle slice with the content on it. And I mean, no, I don't cut off the sides of my sandwich either. Just in case you thought that's a transferable skill. Okay, so you eat the whole piece of bread. I do eat the whole piece of bread, but just because on the bread, the crust is very thin and it's negligible. Same with thin so, fresh pizza. I'll generally eat the crust, so she probably but in normal pizza. She probably wouldn't want me to share this, but when my sister was very young, she would only eat to the edge of a burger on the other side because she said that was the crust. Um, I, will, I will text her that because I'll just be like, hey, you want to promote our latest episode? <laughs> Listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would get so annoyed because I was such a such a pain as a little kid. And I'd be like, it's the same. If you had started from this side, it's the same. Just eat it. I don't know why it bothered me so much. Everything bothered me when I was a child. But it sounds like you did better over time. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, growing up was... What are you going to do better on this week then? So last week, as I mentioned, played a bunch of guitar. And that was good. I've just been playing a bunch of... I don't know, Buri is how you pronounce it? Buri in E minor, which is the first part of Classico, but Classico only plays the first little piece of Buri, but I was like, I'll just, 
I'll just learn all of it. And so that's been kind of fun. Uh, it's also making me just generally better at guitar, which has been nice. So I go back and play my other songs and realize this is way easier now. So maybe I'll finally be able to play um, Death of a Bachelor fingerstyle that I've been trying to learn for a long time. <laughs> and it's just, it's too hard. So maybe I can learn it now, now that I'm slightly better. I mentioned I was going to do three leg days per week. Hasn't been a full week yet, so I've only gotten through two so far. But great success. Very happy with them so far. Uh, I was very sore after the first day. It's technically the first like week of an accumulation block, so fairly low volume, but still four. I did I think four sets of eight on squats, which I had pause squats, which I hadn't done in a long time. And uh, my legs let me know that I hadn't done that in a long time. And then uh, did bike sprint intervals. I don't know why. It seemed like a good idea when I looked at the bike. And I felt so miserable. I was, I was like kind of sick for a couple hours after. And I only did four minutes of work or something stupid. So bike sprint intervals are rough. Uh, I wrote down my monthly goals for August which is just something I do each month. I don't normally mention it. And listen to some more database slash Postgres content, as I said I would. So those things happened. Uh, something that did not happen. I still, I still didn't send more messages on Tinder because I'm the worst. So that's in my do better again. So I should actually do that. But on the other side of like good things, my, I realized that because my gym doesn't require scheduling a session anymore, I can go back to what I used to do, which is not using an alarm. So the thing about having to schedule a session and being charged if you don't show up is you don't want to sleep through it. But now I don't have to worry about that. If I wake up and this is what I used to do before. If I wake up in time, then I get ready and I go to the gym and I have a workout. And if maybe I don't fall asleep very well that night or for whatever reason I sleep from 8 to 8 or something ridiculous and I sleep through it, doesn't matter. Clearly I needed to sleep and it sort of auto-regulates itself. And that's always worked really well. So I'm happy I made that realization, getting back into that phase. Maybe that's why I feel good today because I've actually had a couple days of no alarm. Um, I'm going to call my mom this week because it's been a few weeks. Should have called her last weekend, but I was feeling very tired after all the socializing. So figured I'd wait a week. She's getting her new porch installed so I can hear about how the new porch came along, I guess, when I call her. And I mentioned food already, sticking to my diet. So I dropped a couple pounds last month, which was the goal. And I'm gonna intend to drop, I think I wrote down one to three pounds, which will probably net out to actually be anywhere from three to five total and then regain a couple when I bring calories up to maintenance. But not just in this month. It'll be at some point in the next six weeks or so. But sticking to that, I need I need to keep my fats in my diet because this is a mistake I've always made every time and why I always feel like crap. This is actually the, light, the lightest I've gotten in years and still felt okay because normally I accidentally remove my, all my fat from my diet and don't really realize it because I just don't apparently pay attention to my uh, how my food tastes. So I just eat all this stuff and I realize, oh, I ate like turkey burgers and vegetables and rice and oats 
and protein shakes, and none of those contain fat. And then I feel, wonder why I feel like garbage. So I went to the grocery store and just hunted around for things that had fat in them and looked for variety. So I, I'm notoriously bad at not eating a variety of food. So I was just looking at things. I was like, does hummus have fat? How much fat is in hummus? And I was going to buy like hummus and some peppers. But then I didn't end up buying that because I found some other things I preferred instead, which was one of them was uh, 85% dark chocolate. So four squares of that has 20 grams of fat, which is perfect for in the morning before I go to the gym. I can just eat some chocolate, head to the gym. Felt real good about that. Good way to start the day. And picked up bag of roasted and salted almonds, also very good. Those uh, olives, they don't have that much fat in them. I just, for some reason, uh, was <laughs> wanting to grab them, and they were delicious. And I picked up kefir, which I have drank off and on for years. And so that was that's always good. That's more so just because I try to get some sort of somewhat dairy product in my in my diet from time to time so that I don't become totally incapable of eating dairy again, which happened when I was a student. So had that. And I have one more thing. I know I've been talking forever now, but uh, the last thing, I'm doing this experiment. It's been about a week and a half and it seems to be working where I'm trying to train my middle distance vision. So I spend a lot of time sitting, at, sitting and standing at this desk, looking at a screen that's not very far from me. And I would go outside and try to look at things that were far away and just let my eyes relax. And I was like, this is supposed to be good for my eyes. And after a while, they would feel a little bit better, like they were a little bit refreshed or something, but I was still f developing what seemed to be some level of eye strain and my eyes just weren't very happy. Things were clearly not as good as they should be. And so what I started doing was going outside, never wearing my glasses when I'm out there and trying to intentionally focus on things that were further and further away. And so it started with just sitting across the street and trying to read um, street signs. And I can always read them. The thing is that they're very blurry. It's like my eyes don't know how to focus on it. And so then over the course of the first three or four days, I noticed it went from every sign is always blurry and I can see that it says Johnson Street, but I, I need to accept the fact that like the T is kind of smushed in with the the rest of it and it just doesn't look quite right. And then on like the third or fourth day, suddenly my eyes would just kind of like go real blurry and then just fade in like they do at the eye doctor where they're doing the eye thing where it goes blurry and then clear. And it would just, for at least a second before I blinked, everything would be crystal clear at that distance. And so I started realizing, okay, I can do this. I just need to figure out how to get my eyes to actually look that far. And so then I started practicing just looking at like this tree that's a little bit in front of me and then the tree that's past that and the tree that's past that and then the building and then the stop sign and doing that more and more gradually seems to be the case that now I can walk out and see more distinction between letters on signs. Uh, I can notice the bark on trees from further away. I look across the street and I'm like, oh yeah, that, there's a lot of cracks in that building. Couldn't probably see them before without my glasses. So it seems to be doing something good and I'm hoping that this whole stretching of the eye is going to help with eye health in general. So it's a weird one. I just decided to try it and it seems to be working. 
but uh, I'm going to keep doing that better. I think I'm going to expect an article soon, which will be like, Optometrist hate this guy. Right. <laughs> it's just going to be an ad with me, thumbs up, taking off my glasses. Yeah. <laughs> Stepping on them. That's your YouTube thumbnail. Yeah. How I made my eyes 10 times better. Yeah. yeah. From, How to naturally lift eye gains. From an astigmatism to a stud, the Nathan story. <laughs> there you go. It's already approved. It's a great title. What about you? Um, not as much happening or cool things. Yeah, um, mine was a bit excessive, to be fair. <laughs> it's uh, it's important context. I need that. Uh, and I'm not saying that like sarcastically. That was kind of actually really interesting. Mm. Uh, in my did better, I did some cable management. Okay. So my stand-up desk is there's nothing in the middle. It's just base and then floor. And then it can either go down or up. So all the cables behind it are just hanging in this whole block going down to my power adapter. And it looks messy. And it looks worse when it's in the standing mode because I'm lying on my bed looking at it. And I just see this whole wire hanging off. So I did a little bit of cable management there. It's still in progress because if I tighten them too much, when it's going up, it can't relax enough uh, to have the length properly built. And then I, I'm going to be soon making some more changes to my desk on how I'm putting peripherals where I'm putting them. And so that's going to cause much more problems if I don't uh, cable organize them properly. So learning and figuring that out, um, bought some more, again, the peripherals to make my desk better because I haven't worked at my desk in forever. My previous stand-up desk really sucked. <laughs> So I would stand on it, take video or like take video calls uh -huh. and anything I needed. And then if I needed to actually focus, sit down work, I would go sit on my kitchen table. And that was somehow the perfect height uh, for any work done. And then I couldn't, I wasn't actually working standing. Luckily, most of my work in my previous job was a lot of meetings. So it worked out that I had a decent balance, but now I have a proper desk and I don't know how to work on it. Uh, so I, I'm just structuring things so that I can properly actually use it, be more focused, get work done. And yeah, that's part of my did better. Um, my do better, which is part of my did not do better, <laughs> is uh, I thought I would have more time to focus on the social media for do better. And I didn't. So I'm going to get back on that train, uh, way all the way back off, back on and get get it done because i yeah it, the more i put it off the more our instagram wall is just going to be yellow thumbnails <laughs> um, yeah. so just figuring things out and uh, i'll be getting help from a notorious 80 percent burger eater so we'll see sounds good yeah that's that's my do better hopefully by next week there's going to be a bunch of content on it um, I know in one of the previous episodes, I said I'm going to try reels, and even just making them, I hated and cringed so much uh, that I was like, this is not for me. I am not a reels maker. I'm just going to find our episodes, uh, make them in clips, and post them as content instead of me, which is just not a good, not a good thing. I don't suppose there's a way to disable Instagram from showing you reels, is there? No, because Reels is their new baby. Reels 
proper like first comment hashtags and uh, that's pretty much it that's how their engagement works oh, doesn't even matter if you're just posting high quality photos oh i meant i meant as a user everything i everything oh. i dislike seeing on instagram is is no. reels and i would love to just not have them recommended to me anymore but no. it's not an option the only only way you can skip them is by not clicking on them yeah all right well it was worth a shot yeah if any of our listener is from instagram put uh, put it as a feature flag i think nathan will appreciate it <laughs> yeah disable it for my user please <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, tune in for our next episode where we don't know what we'll talk about, but, but you will. Please tune in. Read the title. Exactly. See you then. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>